Yeah, I'm, but Jeff, you're also VPR this year. Aren't you like the editor this year? <laughs> yeah, I'm like the editor or something. I'm the editor in chief, actually. <laughs> Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. We're excited to have you for the relaunch of Academical. My name is Sean Belowski. I'm a second-year MPP student at UVA. And what a time to relaunch a podcast. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We have a pretty consequential election coming up in November, and there's really no shortage of things, topics, people to talk with. And I'm really excited about the format we've come up with. And I'm excited because I believe you're going to get to meet a lot of of different people with different backgrounds and viewpoints. And that starts with the co-host. And we're going to actually have a different co-host every week. It's going to be a different classmate of mine. And so we'll bring that person on to talk about their background, how they got to Batten. And then from there, we'll bring on a guest that we have collaborated on. And we're going to talk about all different kinds of policy areas this semester and this year. And the first co-host is Jeff Paul, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Virginia Policy Review, so we'll talk to him about what they have planned, and then we'll talk with Dean Ian Solomon. And Dean Solomon has been very busy this summer. We'll get into that, and we'll also get into his background. He has a wealth of experience and knowledge, and he is someone that every time I've interacted with, I've found it an incredibly enriching experience. And so I think... um, I think you will enjoy the conversation that Jeff and I have with him. One thing to note, we are living in the middle of a pandemic, and so we are not recording these in a fancy studio. I'm recording this in a side room of my house. So throughout the year, you might hear some children in the background, some dogs barking, but it's life in the times of COVID. But let's get to it. Let's meet Jeff. So Jeff, first, can you just tell everyone how you kind of a little bit about your background and how you made it to Batten. Yeah, so it was definitely a winding road. Um, I graduated from Boston University a couple years ago with a BA in English um, and spent some time traveling. uh, And then I ended up settling in DC pretty soon after and working in hospitality management, kind of as an in-house consultant. Um, So I was surrounded by policy, but not a member of the policy community, if you will. and I, after like four years of doing that, I was ready to go back to school. I knew that I wanted more skills, um, especially quantitative skills that, um, you know, I just didn't get from, from my time at undergrad. Um, so I fell into Batten mostly because of the small community that we have here um, and the ability to make connections with, with faculty members and, and professors. And so now you're the editor-in-chief of the Virginia Policy Review. Uh, you uh, were involved in VPR last year. What's kind of your vision for the year and what, what do you want to accomplish as your, your year as editor-in-chief? Yeah, so my vision really was informed by my time with VPR last year. Um, working alongside Ana Haritos, the editor-in-chief, you know, we really got back to basics last year. We um, stripped down sort of the structure to focus on publishing one excellent journal every spring and holding a conference every spring. Um, (laughs) Circumstances around COVID delayed the journal, so we're going to publish that in the fall, Um, but I'm really proud of what we have. Uh, And and that attention to the the foundation of EPR, which really is the journal, um, really allows me to build on that and kind of expand our platform this year. Um, So, Sean, you're doing that with the podcast. uh, Megan, our director of outreach, is doing that with partnerships with other CIOs around Batten. Um, and we're also um, continuing to pursue a partnership with the Kennedy School to hold uh, that conference that I mentioned virtually this coming spring, uh, spring 2021. So really what I see my job as this year is kind of taking the ball and running with it and getting Batten, or excuse me, VPR's outreach to kind of expand beyond grounds, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, um, you know, hopefully this podcast will be a, a, 
a vehicle to kind of to do that as well. You know, I think we're going to um, try to have some ambitious conversations here. And the first of which, you know, we we uh, and Jeff, this was your idea. I don't want to take credit for it, but, you know, thought that the the best first guest for for this relaunch of of, of academical was to have uh, Dean Ian Solomon on, who's the dean of the the Batten School for Leadership and Public Policy and, and someone who's been incredibly busy this summer. Um, he was part of the racial equity task force, um, the, the three person team put together by, uh, president Ryan, uh, they just delivered a report. Um, he's written several things, um, about, uh, in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests, uh, something on Juneteenth, the reflection on, um, on the anniversary of August 11th and 12th on the three year anniversary. And so, um, we'll link all of those reports in the, in the show notes, but, um, you know, to your point, I, I think he's he is the the appropriate guest to kind of kick off this relaunch. Yeah, I appreciate the credit for the idea, but it certainly wasn't the most novel one. Um, but you know, I'm excited about the guests we have coming on this month. Um, I took part in this interview with Dean Solomon, but I'm really excited to step aside and hear some of my classmates speak on the podcast. Um, you know, obviously, it's a lot of second years at first, but I'm excited to see what. Um, first-year MPP students, and frankly, even um, policy experts who are pursuing bachelor's degrees, um, how they kind of interact with this podcast and with our digital media space. Um, so you know, I think it's a bright future. We, we have a, a pretty blank slate in a good way uh, here at BPR. Yeah, and you can um, subscribe to the podcast and make sure you do that wherever you're, you're getting your podcasts. Um, but without further ado, here's our conversation with Dean Ian Solomon. So Dean Solomon, I know um, it was a very eventful summer and one where you were incredibly busy between obviously the underlying pandemic that kind of shut down the country and, you know, forced us all on Zoom uh, starting in March. Then you had in the wake of, of George Floyd, all of the all of the social unrest and protests in the street. And and you, you know, you were writing. You were part of the UVA Racial Equity Task Force. Uh, you were hosting a book club and interacting with students all summer. I know you were um, sending one of your children off to college, moving down to Charlottesville. And so, you know, between all of that, just my first question for you is, how are you feeling as we, as we start the school year? Well, thank you, Sean, for uh, bringing it down to kind of the aspect of our, how we feel and how we are as human beings and how we are doing. Because at the end of the day, I think that's what matters most. Um, and if there's, if we all thought about that first and when we met, it came across people, we checked in and how are you actually doing? How are you feeling? Um, I think we'd have more, uh, more empathy, more compassion, more civility in the world. So I appreciate that question. I'm tired if I'm candid. Um, I feel like, yeah, did we have a summer? I, I think I missed it. Now it was not, it was a meaningful summer for sure. So I feel in that sense, I feel fulfilled that I, I'm doing work that I care deeply about in a place that I'm getting to know, but with people that I'm starting to care more and more about. Um, so on one level, you know, what an amazing opportunity. You know, back before I came to the university and, and the Batten School and I was running my own company, if you said that, hey, you can have a, five-year project to tackle issues of racial equity at, you know, in the former Confederacy at the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson University, I'd say what an amazing project to get my arms around and tackle. Um, and then it actually came to pass in a weird way. I also have a school with amazing students like, you know, like you, um, like the students in the book club. So, so I feel, I feel good. You know, it was the expression you made, I'm sure you've heard this quote, after the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, you know, someone said, yeah, my feet is tired, my soul is rested. Not sure I'm quite rested, but my soul feels engaged on meaningful things. Um, so so it, it's been, it's been a, it was a bit hard summer. I wouldn't mind a day of vacation or an hour of vacation or even a weekend if I can find one before things get too busy with this first fall semester. But uh, no complaints. This is work I feel like I'm meant to be doing. What does vacation even look like for you at this point? Because I mean, you've been going not just for this summer, but you have you wear so many different hats. I mean, 
Yeah, so I've never been good at vacation, truth be told. My wife and I are, are, are not great at planning vacation, but I, so you could say that's pathetic on the one hand, or you could say maybe that's because we actually find our lives to be rewarding, um, that we don't invest the time finding ways to escape our daily lives because our daily lives don't need that much escaping. Now we have taken a few vacations and trips and when we get our acts together and when we, in Chicago, I did a better job. We planned a family trip. Actually, we took the kids vacation, bought tickets, locked ourselves in. Um, you know, we managed to, she was not working. So it was easy to coordinate our schedules at the time. Since then it's been harder. But um, I think if I could plan a vacation, it wouldn't be anything elaborate, particularly these days when international travel is, uh, not something that I'm eager to do until we have a greater handle on this disease. It would probably be going to a really quiet lake somewhere where I can just fully embrace nature and, and not feel, I mean, let's be off the grid. So no emails, just give me a great journal to write in a, a great book or two or three to read good cup of coffee, good bottle of wine, maybe a good bourbon and my wife and kids surround me paddling canoes in a lake and I'm, I'm perfectly happy. Well, Dean Salmon, you know, I have uh, three kids. I have twin five-year-olds and a two-year-old, and uh, they're actually at the beach this week. So I'm, I'm at home, but I kind of feel like I'm on, on a little bit of vacation right now. But, um, but Dean Salmon, I want to kind of go back to um, your, under, your, your academic experience. And so you do your undergrad at, at Harvard. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what were you, what were you like as a student? And, and how did that experience kind of set you on the path that, that you're on right now? What was I like as a student? I'm going to break it into two different parts. To the second part about my path, it was going to require me to take some time to figure that out. But you know, I was a, uh, a very, and I would continue to be a very curious student, right? So my my, my studies there were social studies and Afro American studies. I was a double concentration at Harvard, and uh, you know, social studies is about trying to understand the world, right? So we have a my sophomore tutorial was looking at, you know, Weber and Marx and Durkheim and Adam Smith and kind of the, the, the you know, we might consider canonical texts of understanding social organization. And then, you know, you, in junior year, you kind of narrow down and drill onto a couple of topics. And I did a lot of work looking at uh, race and civil war and reconstruction and politics in the U.S., and then your senior year, you typically engage in a thesis. I managed to raise money to go spend time overseas. I lived in South Africa for a year, watching a country go through a social transformation. This was 93, 94. Mandela was out of prison negotiating for a non-racial election and a new democracy in South Africa. Um, these issues, you know, without really planning, these issues continue to be the ones I'm most interested in. How do we take a world of incredibly diverse people and find ways to coexist and improve people's lives in the process. Um, but as a student, I was serious. I was not, I mean, I worked really hard. I was never the smartest in the class ever, um, except maybe, you know, what was it? Fifth grade, seventh grade chemistry, whatever it was. I, then I think I may have been the smartest kid in the class, but uh, at Harvard certainly wasn't, and at Yale for law school certainly wasn't. But I, I, you know, I find it easy to get really intense and work really hard on things I care about. Right, and I even try to coach my my son sometimes, saying like, "Listen, you know, it's not about, you know, even if you are the smartest in certain things, there are many things where you're not. But if you can be the hardest worker, you're going to go a long way." And I think on, on issues that I care about, I, I can work really, really hard. I enjoyed my time at Harvard. Um, I probably took it too seriously. I probably didn't have enough fun. If I could go back and do it again, I would have um, taken my eyes out of my books more often. And looked around. Did did you go into consulting right after undergrad, or did you go straight to law school? So when I graduated, so when I came back from South Africa, I had to finish my senior year because I took a year off, and and wanted to find a way to get back to South Africa. And McKinsey had just opened an office in Johannesburg, or reopened their office in Johannesburg post apartheid. And I thought, okay, great. Well, I'll try to get a job, and I'll see if. I can then get mobility and have McKinsey bring me to South Africa. And the plan was going perfectly. I got a job at McKinsey, New York, was working there and thought I'd go to South Africa. And then, you know, one summer day, June 2nd, 1996, 
rather than going down to my client, I went rollerblading in Central Park and met the woman who's now my wife and was less interested in uh, going back to South Africa and wanted to stay in New York for a while with this new relationship. So uh, it took me about, you know, almost 17 years, I think, to get back to South Africa. Um, but, uh, but no, so I, I uh, did McKinsey for, for three years, actually. And after two years doing the normal paying clients, I spent some time with a significant pro bono client doing some economic development work in Harlem. Um, and then went to law school after spending um, both three years of McKinsey and one year working for this nonprofit in Upper Manhattan, and then went to law school. And I, I noticed that you graduated law school and then stayed at school, which, you know, I don't know. I haven't done a survey of uh, students who graduate with JDs from Yale, but I imagine not all of them sign on to be an associate dean right away. So could you walk me through what was going on uh, in your head at that point in time? Yeah, so I graduated from law school. I, McKinsey allowed me to transfer from New York to the Stanford office. And since they'd helped to pay for two years of law school, I went back to them. As I was working, I'd been at the Stanford office about six weeks. And one weekend, I was back in New Haven, where we lived at the time, and I was on the board of the Schubert Theater. I had a real love for theater and arts, and I was put on the board as a treasurer, because I had a bit of a financial background from McKinsey. And the chairman of the board of the Schubert Theater was another associate dean at Yale Law School. And he drove me home after this board meeting, again, about six weeks after I'd gone back to McKinsey, and he said, would you ever think about working for Yale? And I said, you know, uh, Carol was his name. It doesn't make any sense. I just have gone back to McKinsey after a four-year leave of absence. And I'm going to have to take another leave of absence next year to go clerk for a federal judge. I can't, like, suddenly leave. This is too difficult. And he said, well, can, can the dean call you? And I said, of course, you know, Tony Cromwell was the dean. Of course Tony can call me. Um, well, you know, that's when I learned that you know, deans are persuasive. That's why they make them deans. Hopefully I'll live up to, to Tony's persuasiveness. And the idea of coming back and managing the $65 million budget and being the associate dean for finance and administration and, and trying to, you know, preserve a culture of the school that I, I very much loved at a time, you know, two years or a year after 9-11 when the financial situation was really challenging for the school seemed like an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So if there's a theme in my life, it's, you know, jump at opportunities. You know, don't think there's a plan for your life because, as you've heard me say before, the essence of life is change and uncertainty. So, so seize things when they, when they strike you. And here, this opportunity struck me and I took it. But it was funny, just on the, on the point, like, I, so I was, um, there was a professor there who I bumped into in the hallways after I started working there. And he's like, oh, Ian, good to see you. Um, you graduated recently, too. When were you here? I'm like, yeah, uh, when I took your exam three months ago. <laughs> uh, so I was very quickly back as an associate dean. How's this year at Batten been different than those years at Yale as dean or associate dean? So, uh, you guys know, is it Monty Python? And, you know, it's good to be the king. No, it's nice to be the dean. Um, there are things that, that a dean can do that an associate dean, you know, uh, has a much more limited portfolio. So, in this role, I really get to try to think about what are the, you know, what are the values, what's the vision for the institution as a whole. Um, so it's been very different in the sense that I have a, a broader ambit. It means, you know, and, and because of my job as associate dean at, at Yale, I didn't get that much student interaction. Um, and frankly, that's often the most fun parts of these jobs. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been very different because I get a lot more time with students, get a lot more time to think about strategy, uh, more time engaging faculty on the issues they really care about. So it's been great. Um, and back when I was associate dean, I never thought I, wa I wanted to be dean. In fact, I, one, of, you know, one of the deans at the law school there was trying to help me plot out how I could be, be dean by 40 at a law school. And I said to him, why do I want to do that? Um, I never thought I'd be uh, a dean. Now that I am at uh, 47, I'm not sure I'm, I'm early or late, but um, it's been a great adventure so far. Well, you know, after after Yale, uh, you go to uh, I believe that was after you go and work with, with then Senator Obama, correct? And uh, you mention, uh, you know, you just kind of jump at opportunities. What what was the opportunity that that you saw there? Um, you know, when you first t took that job, and and obviously, you know, it's um, 
I imagine had a pretty profound impact on on where you are now. Yeah, so I heard Obama speak at the Kerry Convention, the Democratic Convention in 2004 in, uh, in Boston. And after hearing him speak, I said, this is someone <clears throat> who has an important future for this country, and I want to go work with him. Um, so I found a successor for myself at Yale, and I went to go be a Hill staffer. Um, you know, cut my pay in half and moved my family from the house we had owned in New Haven to an apartment in uh, in, in the D.C. area. And it was a, it was a, quite a change to go from you know my, my my dean role to being a staffer role. But I I you know I believe then and still believe and think we achieved some things and think there's a lot more work to be done. But that Obama had a certain and very important message for this country, um, and an opportunity to you know, do what I'm, we're still trying to do, which is bring more healing to this country. Um, you know, I think a lot of what we might have achieved was derailed by coming in at a time of global financial crisis, which I think we did a reasonable job managing and handling, but it meant that uh, we were playing catch up for more of the time than, than moving this country forward. But uh, on healthcare, and on a number of things that we did actually make a lot of progress on restoring, you know, U.S. leadership in the world. Wow, we've got a lot more work to do next time, um, you know. Well, and you talked about, you know, with the financial crisis and you also do some work with the Department of the Treasury. Uh, you are the representative for the World Bank. And so you kind of have almost a, a front row seat to kind of the global financial rebuild in the wake of that. And, um, you know, you, I'm curious your your reaction to kind of what we're seeing economically today with your experience and kind of, again, having that front row seat to trying to rebuild this global economy, you know, when it broke down in, in um, 2007, 2008. Yeah, so one of the key takeaways from our efforts for the recovery in 2008, 2009, the early Obama administration was just the incredibly important role of international cooperation, of having adults and allies sit in a room together and agree on things collectively. Because if you want to do, you know, counter cyclical investments and in spending to deal with, you know, uh, you know, a recession or a depression as we feared, it helps to have all places working together. It's kind of like dealing with a, a health pandemic, right? If you're really going to contain it, you got to cooperate. You got to share information. You got to plug holes together. And I think uh, it was a, a moment at a time when you know um, Obama was able to work very well with other countries. Um, and I think we we did a you know not a perfect job, but a, a good job stabilizing the global economy. Now. One of the problems, perhaps, is that we stabilized the economy, but there was a sense that certain certain groups, certain entities, certain sectors got off too easy, and certain people paid more of a price, as often happens in these things. And I, I wonder whether, you know, first it was the Arab Spring in 2011, and then you had, you know, the Occupy movement, and, you know, you had the, actually even then before the, the, the yeah, the early Tea Party, and I think actually a populist shift in many parts of the world, whether this is in some ways a reaction to our success, stabilizing the economy, but perhaps letting the banks off too easy. Do you think, um, do you think legislating winners and losers is just inherent to leadership? So I think, I, I prefer, so there, there are situations, and there certainly are leaders who see things as zero sum, right? We're just, we're just gonna, it's a fixed pie and we're gonna divide it up and some people get more, some people get less, right? And there's a, you know, that, that sort of distributive process is the way many leaders approach their work and there are some situations where it really is a distributive exercise. But when I teach negotiation and when I think about leadership, I prefer what I call, and what we call in negotiation, integrative negotiation, right? Can we grow the pie as well? Right? It doesn't have to just be winners and winners, winners and losers. Can, it, can there be win-win outcomes? And I think the best leaders, the leaders I'm most inspired by and the leaders I hope we are part of cultivating a baton, are leaders who take a win opportunity. 
versus how do we find ways so that it's not just winners and losers and you know dividing a fixed set of benefits but through cooperation through collaboration through creativity we expand the available benefits and that's what i believe what american democracy means i think we've gone to a very distributive notion of our democracy as opposed to an integrative expand the pie notion of our democracy. Uh, I'm going to push you a little bit on this though, because, and just maybe this will help me understand in the past, you've also said um, you think leaders should have a bias towards action or at least decision. And that inevitably comes with disappointing people. So how do you reconcile those two, two things? So um, I'm going to, I'm going to push back on you now, Jeff. I'm not sure taking action always disappoints people. I think it made me people uncomfortable because we often do have a, bad, a bias towards the status quo, even an uncomfortable status quo. Sometimes we prefer because it's familiar to us. So change for many people is uncomfortable. And if leaders are associated with change, leaders may be disappointing people in that regard. But part of being a leader is helping people prepare for change since change is inevitable. Um, so, so I don't think we have to assume that if, you know, that people will always be unhappy with what leaders do, but people may be made a little bit uncomfortable. And, and part of the work is to mitigate that discomfort for people, or at least show them the trade-off of what they're getting in exchange for that discomfort. But you are right, and I'm not going to push back too hard, because yes, sometimes leaders, and often leaders, will have to disappoint people. Because if you want to get people into a new state of being, a new situation, they may have to give up something to get there. Um, you know, and I think, you know, sometimes they will be willing to do it grudgingly, but there is enough trust in who's leading them that they're willing to go along. Other times they're going to be, have to be dragged along, kicking and screaming. Um, you know, and part of what I think the challenge is for leaders is recognizing that there is no one size fits all solution. There is no one approach to leadership. I think leadership is about understanding what's the context, who are the constituents, what's the objective. And how do I navigate my way there? And hopefully it's in a, you know, I am, at the same time I may be disappointing you, I'm building trust with you. I'm, I'm developing in you some reason to, to see benefits for you in this new dispensation. Um, whether it's on a moral basis, whether it's on an economic basis, whether it's on a community basis or an identity basis, what are the things that might motivate you to cooperate with this change? Yeah, and that rings a lot with the little bit I've gotten from your pedagogical approach to Batten. So I'm also curious as where you experience that discomfort in your own life and kind of how you translate that to um, coaching faculty or coaching students uh, within the school. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and you both know from the, the book club we've done, you know, I, I wrestle because I am someone who believes in and everything I say and what I'm saying now about hope and bringing people along and finding ways to include even those who may be disappointed and, and, and not want to come along. And yet we see many times in history where um, there's something about our species that doesn't like to get along, that prefers to see things as us versus them rather than we that is very quick to react with hostility to the progress of others, even when it does not come at the, to the expense of oneself. Um, so reconciling my own hopeful humanistic vision where we all can actually evolve and develop and grow to respect and accommodate and coexist with each other with the reality I sometimes see watching TV as I have or watch as for the past few days um, with uh, certainly the Republican convention um, or the streets of, you know, Wisconsin or the streets of many cities now, we see a level of polarization, a level of visceral hatred towards other people. And that makes me uncomfortable because I don't, I, I don't have a moral view that has room for something called evil. That's not part of my, my, my philosophical approach to the world. And yet there are times I see examples that suggest that this may actually be a force in our universe. So how do I reconcile those two things? 
Dean Solomon, you mentioned the polarization and that, that kind of gets to a, a topic we wanted to kind of dive into. And, you know, given the the environment of polarization that we're in right now, or the polarized environment rather, uh, what do you think Batten's role is within that environment? You know, how do you envision Batten's role, especially within, you know, a country that is just seemingly, um, you know, just just very divided and very polarized? So if I were dean of a medical school and outside on the street, outside our building, there was a car wreck, I would tell all my students, hey, let's go out and see if we can help. Let's figure out who needs healing, who needs help, because they're broken and injured and wounded and bodies in pain and suffering out there. Let's go help. Well, as dean of a policy school, I look outside our not just our four walls, but our community here. And I see a disastrous, epic 20 car pileup of public policy and leadership disasters happening. Um, so I think our role is, hey, how do we help? How do we reduce suffering in the world, expand freedom in the world, bring more healing to this country? Um, that doesn't mean the same way as a medical doctor, I don't know whether people have broken legs or need organ transplants or what they might need. I don't know in this context exactly what they might need. Um, but I do know that we are a country in need of healing now, for sure. Um, and I think it's healing that, you know, and the tools, the tools set up, the only toolkit we could have, but the, an important toolkit is one of public policy and, and leadership of, our, of different types of organizations and communities. So, so that's our role is how, how, do we serve, how do we better serve this society, not just this country, but this world, but let's even start with our commonwealth. How do we serve the communities in which we live to improve people's lives, particularly in a very divisive, angry, unequal, fearful moment? Do you think that since the pandemic started and everything that, is, that has come along since since it started, do you think that, um, I guess two questions. One, do you think that it has revealed the answers a little more clearly about, you know, what, what needs to be done? Um, and two, you know, a big part of leadership is getting people to, to follow along. And so if you, you feel like you know the answers, right, you know, I, I, th this is one of the, the biggest um, criticisms I think I have of, of the progressive movement is that I think that, um, you know, trying to win an argument and trying to get people to kind of follow you and, and kind of get that power are two different things. And, and I'm not sure how effective it's been. And so, um, you know, I, I guess the first question, are the answers more clear now? And two, you know, how do you go about, um, you know, in this polarized world where people are really entrenched, how do you go about changing minds and, and getting people to, to change? So a couple of things I think are very clear to me, at least, and doesn't mean that they'll be clear to others or the others will agree. But one lesson, had we cared about Wuhan and the people there suffering from this disease and not seen it as a group of others over there with their problem, but said, hey, here's a part of our human species that's in trouble right now. Had we cared about Wuhan, we would have been prepared more quickly. Had we cared about Seattle, once we did see the blow up in this country, and not seeing all the other part of the country, but actually, no, this is part of our human family that needs healing right now. We would have been better prepared to deal with this pandemic. It would never have exploded. We would have actually been able to contain it had we cared about others. So that's one very clear lesson to me is that we all share the same globe. And one thing I'm worried about is, is our COVID response kind of the preview of our climate change response that we kind of are saying, yeah, we kind of happening elsewhere. It's not really affecting us yet until it's too late. And then it has to change all our lives and we have to basically shut down in different parts and we, and we all suffer. I'm hoping this is not the preview, but there are days when it feels like it is. And it seems to me there's a strange alignment between those who deny climate change and those who deny COVID. Um, the other lesson is, and this is what we, I talked about after the financial crisis of 2008, you know, diseases, you know, a virus doesn't recognize borders or state lines or the ways we like to organize our communities. It spreads. 
right? We need to be collaborating with others. We need to be working with other communities. We need to be sharing information. We need to have good, trustworthy information so that we can share. We need to kind of try to have a common fact base among us so that, so that we can, you know, pass along best practices. Um, so that's become very clear that the absence of collaboration is catastrophic for us as a species. Um, we also need another lesson that's very clear to me is a little bit more humility, right? We've made mistakes along the way, right? I think our early guidance on masks, though, was because we didn't have enough PPE, but signaling that, no, don't, don't go out and buy masks now, do other things. You know, I think we need to be able to say, you know, we're a learning species. We're going to screw things up. We should forgive each other when we do and have some humility and hopefully create a scientific basis so that we can make better decisions next time. Humility in American politics is a very uh, rare virtue. I, I kind of feel that that's something that I think has been un underestimated about the public in general is that if you look across, across the globe, the leaders that have really, I think people understand how hard a problem like the pandemic is. And, and I think that they have shown some grace to, to the leaders that have at least tried to, to make a difference. And, um, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, Governor, Governor Cuomo in, in New York, who, you know, was out front, he was doing daily briefings, he was exercising leadership. Now, did he make all the right decisions? No. Um, but I, I, I've, I've been kind of encouraged at how um, I think people understand on the whole how hard this problem was. And, and if people, you know, if leaders were, were making honest efforts, then I felt like the public was pretty for pretty forgiving. Um, I don't know if you agree with that. No, I think that's an important point. And again, certainly for the leadership that I admire and hope to cultivate. I think treating your, you know, your constituents as smart, thoughtful, reasonable people who are worthy of and entitled to your honest assessment of things, even if that honest assessment changes, is critically important. And I think that, that you know, what, what Cuomo was able to do as one example was build a level of trust with his constituents. Um, and that gave them a level of grace when changes. It doesn't mean that, again, to your point earlier, Jeff, about it doesn't mean they always like it. They may be disappointed, but there's a sense that, okay, at least I know if it's wrong, he's going to change his mind. And I'm going to, and there's going to be some, some ability to, to self-correct. Um, trust is, is such a critical and intangible asset for leaders. Um, particularly in a divided time when we almost see the other side, not only as a, someone who disagrees, but as an enemy, right? How do, how do you then trust them when, as inevitably happens, they get their turn um, to lead? If you've made it seem like they're not just someone who disagrees, but an enemy, we've just perpetuated the cycle of division. Um, so I, I try, one of the things I try as Dean is, is not to be terribly partisan, but really to say, I wanna hear all voices, the thing that, that has gotten me to change, become a little bit sharper in recent weeks is my sense that, you know, democracy is our fundamental policy priority right now. Making sure not only the, the values of our democracy, but the machinery and voting within our democracy and the habits of how we engage with each other in democracy are so fundamental and come before any of the other policy debates we might have about choice or abortion, about climate change environment about police reform we got to have a democratic system that actually works is that a you know, sorry sean but i just want to is any part of you afraid about november because i don't read fear in your tweets but i also know there's a lot more depth to your emotions than what those 140 characters capture so you, you think you guys have heard me talk about uh nelson mandela and he writes in many of his, so he's written about how he had to pretend to be brave, right? When he was at Robben Island as a prisoner, um, people always ask him like, God, you were so brave. How were you so brave? And he said, yeah, he was terrified inside, but he had to pretend, almost will himself to be brave. Um, 
and I kind of feel the same way sometimes. So yes, there's a lot of part of me that, that has lots of fear for this country, but I also know that fear, although a little bit of fear, um, particularly when it's acute and short-lived can be constructive, a chronic fear is actually debilitating and doesn't lead to the sort of creativity we want, right? So it's okay to be motivated by a little bit of fear and to, to get off your butt and, and get to work to do things. But beyond that, one has to be thinking, okay, what are we gonna do? Right, just just to be, you know, you know, when you're terrified, you know, you typically have a, you know, fight, flee, or freeze response. I don't like any of those options, right? How do we have a, you know, create new, build, grow response here? So, um, but it's hard. If I'm candid, I have a lot of fear right now. I think we're at a moment of division um, that. I've read about, but never quite witnessed. And when I've read about it, it's been at times that has uh, been uh, real moments of, of violence and transformation for society. Kind of switching gears a little bit here, Dean Solomon, but you, you were named to the Racial Equity Task Force in June, and, and you all recently submitted a, a report, which I would encourage anyone who has uh, been involved with the university to read. We'll actually link to it in the show notes. Um, but I'm curious, how, how did that work? Uh, affect your approach to both the university and and Tibetan? So it was a great opportunity to get to know the university very quickly. Um, we ended up having Zoom meetings with 300 plus groups and student representative groups and faculty and um, a representative group for the descendants of the slaves who built this university. Um, alumni, right? So it was a great opportunity to really learn a lot quickly. At the same time, many of those conversations were actually quite painful to listen to. Um, and I'd be in some days, many hours of conversations and saying, wait, here's a school that I'm just learning to love. I just got here. My family's moving here. I haven't even fully moved in yet. And I'm hearing about so many scars and wounds that this place bears that I kind of knew about, but they were a little bit distant. And this daily, daily, daily engagement said, wow, there's a lot here. Um, so it's forced me, I think, to, to have some um, maturity, maturation of my own views about this place and recognize like everything else in the world, there's lots of nuance. Right? The problem with our division and our politics right now is it's all black and white, losing the nuance and shades of gray. Um, life is shades of gray. Right? So the sooner we realize that about you know, our families, our parents, ourselves as parents, um, that you know, it's rarely perfect or evil. History is not just about you know, victims and villains. Everything's more complicated. And, and UVA's you know, history and the experience people hear is things that we, that this university has been a part of um, and that even consistent, that continue in certain respects, that are real problems. And yet there are people who've had extraordinarily empowering experiences here. And we've seen this institution also make extraordinary progress, right? So embracing all of that at the same time saying, okay, well, how do we continue to build the community we all want to live in and we can all be proud of? What surprised you about that process? Because some of this stuff I'm sure you anticipated. So one of the things that surprised me and, and, and continues to um, trouble me is some of our conversations with the different members of the staff at UVA, um, many of whom have an experience here where you know, they really are not only not included, but they, in some cases, talk about this as working on the plantation. And what they experience doesn't sound all that different in some regards from a plantation. Um, one of the most uh, striking things was people who were afraid to actually talk to us because they were fearful that if they told us what they'd experienced, there could be retribution against them. That strikes me a place that is really needed lots of healing. We have a lot of work to do to make people feel safe first and foremost to even express their grievances so we can work on resolving. That was a really surprising thing. Again, I should have been kind of known about it, but I think it was even more acute here than I had expected it to be. You know, this week, um, you know, it's pretty, pretty remarkable with uh, what's happened in the sports world with the NBA um, boycotting their games. We're recording this on Friday afternoon, but they boycotted their games. I believe it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
um, if I'm getting that. John, I just want to adjust one word. Uh, I think we should call it a strike, not a boycott. Strike, yes. Personally. Okay. Fair, I, I was going to jump exactly in with that, right Jeff, and that. I appreciate you. Uh... Yes. With, withholding labor, right? Um, and, and, and I think in, you know, we have uh, a Baton representative in the WNBA who has been on the, the front lines of this for years. Uh, if you follow the WNBA, their players have been very outspoken about issues of equity and, and racial justice. Um, and Jocelyn Willoughby, who was the number 10 pick by the New York Liberty, she's playing down in the bubble now. Um, but but what, what struck me in, in connecting this to the report, Dean Solomon, is that in the report, you talk about how a lot of the, uh, the recommendations aren't necessarily novel and they're not necessarily new. And, you know, reading a story about Bill Russell, who, who um, had his own strike when he walked out of an, an exhibition game in 1961 about the same issues that the players are walking out on now. And I, I thought the report did a, a really nice job of highlighting the work that's been done before, the reports that have been submitted before. Um, and, and really, um, you know, it, it's a fight that just continues, that, that just keeps getting, um, just kind of keeps covering the same ground almost and, and nothing changes. And so you know, what kind of gives you uh, the hope that, that this is something that will, that will kind of spur change and be a catalyst for change this time around? So I, um, this cycle of having to repeatedly struggle and repeatedly resist and repeatedly um, fight for your humanity and for your rights you know, we observed that in our book club this summer, right? Looking back, and even if we don't always even know the history, but resistance did not suddenly start in the civil rights movement, did not suddenly start after civil war. You know, it started, you know, during slavery, right? So, so you know, this is a narrative, and that's why it's not just victims. They're, they're real agents of change. People are agents in their own change going throughout history. Um, and... I am a bit more hopeful. I don't accept the idea that nothing has changed. I think we can make progress and still always have a lot more work to do, right? I think this country has been in a perpetual state of needing to repair from its original structural defects. We may never get there completely, but we can make real progress, um, right? And I think we have seen real progress on many dimensions of life, but at the same time as we see progress, we see quite appropriately raising expectations. Right? It's hard to even know what true equality should look like when you're, when you're chained and don't have the rights to your own human property and, 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 and humanity. Um, okay, and then you are no longer enslaved, but okay, now I actually need a quality of right to, you know, to farm, to own land, to, to, to produce. Now I have that actually, and now I also want to have rights to access the same stores and the same lunch counters and the same seats on the bus. Okay, now I actually want the same rights on boards and in positions of governance of institutions, not just, you know, uh, lower level employees. So I think, and that's how it should be. As a country, we should be constantly aspiring to greater and greater equality and greater fulfillment of our, I think, our shared aspirations that we codified in our early early founding documents. Um, And hopefully they align with, you know, whether it's your own natural law, your own sense of justice, you know, treating people with greater humanity and recognizing the humanity of all, I think it's something that I certainly ascribe to. Um, but it is tiring sometimes. Boy, oh boy, right? So I think today is the anniversary, 65 years since the murder of Emmett Till, or something like that. I'm not sure that'll be when this podcast airs. Um, but you look back and you say, how are we still here? How have we not moved beyond this yet? I, I look at the at the shooting of Jacob Blake, and it looks to me like an attempted lynching. Thank God he survived, right? You know, and the history of lynching is a long history, so it's more rare than it's been in the past, but we haven't overcome it. Police brutality has been a part since the, the, from the earliest police after the Civil War, basically to keep black bodies in line and dehumanized. So we have a lot of work to do. We've not made as much progress as any of us would have hoped, but there has been progress, right? Slavery around the world is less slavery now than in the past. There's less subjugation of women than in the past. There's less sexual violence than in the past, right? People do have you know, more freedom and equality than they have, but we more, have more we need to do. And that's kind of what I'm hoping that uh, we are part of here at Batten is 
empowering and inspiring leaders who can help us create a more perfect union, who can help us achieve these goals because the fight's not going to be over in our lifetime, but we can get a hell of a lot closer. Yeah. One thing that stuck out to me in this moment, like today, um, was, you know, I watched the video that Chris Weber posted. I think you posted on your Twitter. Um, and just as someone who's studying policies, implementation, and history, he, he was talking about marginalized um, people when he said, we preach and we tell them to vote and then we walk away. And I think, you know, that really rang true from a, from a social service and policy perspective. And we talk a lot about Batten or at Batten about creating ethical leaders. Um, and you've been here for a year. So I just, I wonder how you evaluate how we're doing and you know, where we're going in the next, let's say five years with that push. The, so I think we're doing okay. Right. I think, and I'm proud to work for the university of Virginia right now with Jim Ryan as provost as, as president and, and Liz McGill as provost. You know, I think we have and, and, and we have a number of great deans here. And I think the, the university strategy of being not only great, but trying to be good too is I find inspiring and a part of kind of what makes you proud to be part of this moment at this institution of trying to achieve these things. Um, and it's, it was hard before. It's even harder with this sort of economic situation we're going to face in our COVID slash someday post COVID environment. We got a lot of ground and it's much easier to bring change with a, uh, a growing pie than with a shrinking pie, right? Now there are, the trade-offs will be harder now. The constraints we face will be greater now. So we require more creativity and more like you talked before, more of finding, having to disappoint some people if you want to make change happen. Um, so I think we are making progress, real progress, but the jury's still out. Um, I don't know yet how far we will get. There's often a backlash to progress, as we've seen, where we, we, as we studied with the book club, right? You have reconstruction and you have redemption. Um, you know, and some would say that, you know, Trump is the backlash to Obama, right? So as we're making progress and trying to make this, this university and this community and, and the Batten School itself, you know, more equitable, more just, more focused on, on the, 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 the values that I think we share, there may be voices that say, hey, um, somehow, you know, we used to feel like we had a, a seat or a bigger seat or the only seat at the table, and now it's take, being taken away. We, we, we want to fight to get back in. Um, you know, we will see this in debates over what some call cancel culture. Um, you know, it's, and I, like many others, find it a little curious. If you're talking about being canceled with a platform of the nation, it doesn't seem very canceled. Um, but I still think we do need to kind of create space for all voices to be heard somehow. Um, so I don't know. How, I, I, I turn the question around how, how you think we're doing. Or, or I wonder how, how listeners think we're doing. Um, I'm sure many will think we're not doing enough, um, and some will be fearful that we're moving too fast. Uh, you know, and it's up to each of us to decide where is where do we feel like we are on that journey. I, I'm going to continue to push further ahead and probably even further and harder than I thought when I first took this job. Yeah, I mean, reflecting on how we're doing, uh, one of the struggles I have with this program, and it's really just a policy struggle in general, is how it can work to make problems kind of decontextualized and antiseptic. Um, you know, I, I think in your Medium article in June, yeah, I have names prevent us from being numbed by statistics or the anonymity of strangers. And I think in my experience, sometimes some of the research that we put in to cost benefit analysis and aggregate um, benefits of policies loses the myth-making that leaders have to do to enact change. So I wonder if you have a reflection on that more broadly as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, a great point. And I think we have to work hard at Batten to make sure that people don't think it's all just about data and facts and statistics. It's about people and whether their lives are getting better and whether they believe and they know their lives are getting better or not, right? Now, I think one of the challenges we face is you know, sometimes you need to learn the alphabet before you can learn to read. And you need to learn how to read simple sentences before you can read complex paragraphs. And you need to learn to read well before you can learn to write your own poetry and, your, and, and produce your own great literature. So we spent a lot of the earlier 
in the vocabulary and teaching the alphabet for how to analyze situations. And I think almost the whole first year is spent largely in that foundation building phase. Um, and then the second year goes by so fast that people are so focused on getting jobs that, that how do we make sure there's enough time to say, okay, now I can read. Now do I have, how do I start thinking about the literature and, and, and really creating more and more meaningful connections and the understanding the richness of context and adding qualitative to the quantitative and adding in-person experiential, you know, um, um, engagement with people to what I'm reading about on charts and, you know, in Stata. Um, so it, it is a tension, right? Uh, and, that, and that's why I gave the example before of kind of, you know, if I were dean of a medical school, go out and, solve, and, and deal with the potential patients because if you're only studying, you know, in the classroom, that's kind of level one, cadavers are level two, but if you never go out and deal with real people, you're gonna be a terrible doctor. The same is true for policymaking and leadership, I believe. One final question on the, on the task force report. Has the reaction to the report been been what you hope not only from um from the administration but also from the uva community as a whole has it um has it been what you expected what you hoped and is there any anything that has um kind of been been disappointing about the reaction at all not yet um that's not a uh it's not necessarily disappointment or criticism but uh jury's still out Right. And we know as people who think about policy, the policies are relevant. What's the impact it has? What's the implementation look like? Not that it's irrelevant, but you can have the most. And I've dealt with this, you know, we are, you know, my time in the above administration, some really elegant policies. But if they don't achieve the, your initial goals, who cares? Right. So I think we have some good thinking in this report. I think there's some real thought and some real inclusion of, 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 of ideas and some real balance and pragmatism. But at the end of the day, we'll see what actually happens. So I'm very pleased and proud that the faculty senate has fully endorsed it, that the student council has fully endorsed it, that the UVA Idea Fund has fully endorsed it, right? And one of the alumni organizations, right? So, so, so that's great. People like the report. But I'm not going to be satisfied until I actually see action taken and change happen. Um, and I don't yet see that, right? It's gonna be presented to the Board of Visitors on the, the next meeting, September 10th and 11th, um, hoping that they will take some action and empower the president to take some action and endorse kind of the action that, that he intends to take. And I'm hoping and expecting that student groups and faculty will find the things they like and continue to put pressure on the areas to make sure we get the change. Because you know, we don't pretend that every one of our recommendations is necessarily right. I'm pretty confident they're all on the key points and issues. So let's, I'm hoping that, that people will mobilize to, to add their ideas and their energy towards making change actually happen. So the, the, real, real, the real measure of our success will not be this summer or next year. It will be when I look back let's say five years from now, are we on a, a different path and picking up speed? Well, well, we'll conclude with the question that we plan on asking everyone to finish off these podcasts. So what's the leadership lesson that you have learned that you wish someone would have shared with you as an undergraduate or graduate student? So I think it gets to the issue of shades of gray that I talked about. And I, I learned this actually when I was, yeah, at least I was introduced to it, although it wasn't really fully refined till later, but you know, when I was going through some of these areas in South Africa, some of the townships, um, and would be surprised because I'd be in a township of overwhelming poverty. And then I'd see a beautiful house and a Mercedes there. It was in the township, right? And I realized the social differentiation of every context, right? There's always, you know, be very careful with generalities about all people this or all people that. Every situation you will find differentiation. No one is either all good or all bad. No situation is either all wrong or all right. Um, you know, find the things that you can build upon that are better than bad and find the things you need to fix that are, are less than fully good. And maintain a real humility. Um, you know, I sometimes like to say, listen twice as much as you speak. 
Um, I probably have not followed that rule on this podcast, but it's, it's, it's you know, so maybe I'm still learning these lessons. Um, but I think good leaders listen more and talk less and, and do find ways to, you know, hear from other voices because their your initial assumption as a leader may not be wrong, but I guarantee you it's always incomplete. No one's clicking this link to listen to me or Sean, Dean Solomon. It's fine. You didn't have to listen twice as much on this particular hour. Well, I appreciate the chance to, to, to ramble on at you guys and to have you in the Batten family and hopefully to keep you engaged, trying to build, build upon this family and make us more stronger, more effective, more impactful in the world. Thanks so much to Dean Solomon for being here and to Jeff Paul for co-hosting this week. Also would like to thank Joshua Margulies, who a couple years ago led the effort in getting Academical off the ground and all of their hard work a couple years ago made it much easier for us to relaunch this podcast this time around. And he was an incredible resource for Jeff and me as we were thinking through this project this summer. So thanks so much to Joshua as well. Be sure to subscribe to Academical wherever you get your podcasts. You can search for Virginia Policy review or academical and we will be back with another episode next week stay safe